Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 275 with my guest, TT. We're going to talk about, uh, that is a pseudonym for him, and we're going to talk about him growing up in Melbourne and uh, being Vietnamese, experiencing racism, and having a mentally ill mother. Uh, my name is Paul Gilmartin, and uh, I'd like to introduce myself to you. Uh, this is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, almost, almost couldn't say that, uh, to simple everyday uh, negative thinking. I'm not a, <laughs> I'm not a therapist. I'm not a doctor. Um, I'm not a carpenter. But then again, no. I am not a blacksmith. This joke is getting old. I am a nuclear physicist. I wanted to wait until the five-year mark to let you guys know that I've actually uh, figured out uh, space-time, and I've just been keeping it to myself because I'm I'm humble. This show's not meant to be a substitute for uh, professional mental counseling. Not a doctor, not a therapist. This isn't a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that does not suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go there, check it out, fill out a survey. Maybe we'll read your survey on the show. Join the forum, read blogs or guest blogs, uh, support the show financially, uh, use our Amazon search link, whatever you want to do. Let's get to some surveys. Uh, this is a struggle in a sentence survey. Uh, these are all actually struggle in a sentence surveys, I think. Uh, this one was filled out by Bill, who writes about his depression. Uh, it's like I'm colorblind while looking at a rainbow. That is Hall of Fame right there. Um, Brianna, about her anxiety. I live every day in a cage, but instead of metal bars, my bars are made up of other people's expectations of me. That is that is good. That is good work, Brianna. Your anxiety has paid off with a beautiful sentence. Um, her loneliness. She writes, loneliness feels like you are standing still when everything around you is moving. 
That's a good one. Uh, unfamiliar Ceiling writes about her depression. Maybe if my best friends weren't my bed and my vibrator, I would have an opportunity to find a partner. A snapshot from her life. I've been single for over a year now, but I'm so picky that I haven't given anyone that that's messaged me on dating sites a chance. I feel like it's okay for me to be picky, but I get upset if someone doesn't find me attractive. So frustrating. Thank you for that. Um, McPanicAttack writes about his anxiety, like I'm being hunted, but everyone keeps offering me orange vests. That's a great one. Snapshot from his life, taking Xanax to feel normal, then drinking an entire 16-ounce energy drink to keep it from dulling me. I call it the middle-class speedball. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, and then Mary Effin Sunshine, uh, who is gender fluid, writes, uh, uh, gives us a snapshot from their life. Their uh, issues are depression, anxiety, um, and anger issues. Uh, oh, and BPD and alcoholism in case those other ones weren't enough, and a snapshot from their life, being so proud of myself that I cleaned the entire house, did the laundry, and cooked dinner all by myself, and it'll be okay. Mom won't stay asleep on the couch forever. I counseled her a bit this afternoon, and it seems like she's doing a little better. Did I mention I was eight years old? I fear that I'm inadequate. I fear that I'm inadequate. So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job. Mental illness is convincing myself I'm so alone why hypervigilance I should try to do something I hate my kids seeing me like that I just imagine killing people I woke up with rats in my hair they warp reality am I losing myself or am I becoming myself I go back to bed hiding underneath the sofa while people were shooting outside the house I was able to get myself out of Scientology put a gun to my mother's head and I was 11 years old and you just garbage moving from one person's house to the next person's house and you just hope they don't throw you out like garbage you know so i planned my suicide because you won't ask for help i'm asking for help i'm not pretending everything's okay i'm not trying to do it alone i'm really happy that i did it because a lot of good things have happened since then that, that option just evaporated and i'm, I'm not going to kill myself i don't think i have what the woman who is not right for me anyway <laughs> wants i'm here with who is an australian of uh vietnamese, vietnamese. Yep. descent mm -hmm. um and you you contacted me via email. Uh, yeah. And uh, we emailed each other back and forth a couple of times. Mm -hmm. And uh, you have some stuff that you'd like to talk about. Uh, are we really rolling? <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I guess I... <laughs> I've just really just come out of a really bad place in my life. And, uh, you know, I'm a long-time listener to the show, so... And it's really helped me. I'm, and I'm not just saying that because we're sitting across from each other. And it, um, yeah, it's just been a real big journey for me. And uh, just coming to a place of recovering my life emotionally. Uh, and just, I suppose, it comes from being raised by an uh, obsessive-compulsive mother and who more or less suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder. And my... My mom's, uh, you know, obviously my both my parents are refugees from the Vietnam War, and I I grew up with her. My parents got divorced when I was. Were they South Vietnamese? Uh, I always find it hard to answer questions about my parents in like the specifics, but the hearsay, like from what I've heard from my siblings and stuff, mm -hmm. is my 
my my dad's from the south and my mom uh, her family's from the north but migrated towards the south because they're catholics and so i think during the communist uh, regime era or like during the war they were like basically uh yeah <laughs> like uh real catholic vietnamese people were welcome in the south so i think i see uh what year did they emigrate uh, some somewhere during the mid eighties. Oh, okay. So they experienced uh, a decade of the communist regime. Or possibly even maybe they probably actually no. I think they must have left during the late seventies, and they met in Australia. Okay, so, but yep. they did get to experience the change in, yep. in regime. Um, yeah, I would imagine that would uh, lead to some some PTSD. Mm. Um. So what are the broad strokes of some of the issues that you that you struggle with? I know one of the things that we talked about in your email was racism. Mm -hmm. And um, in particular, you talked about Vietnamese people being looked down upon by other Asian Mm -hmm. ethnicities. Can you talk about that? Uh, Yeah, I I grew up I grew up in the inner city uh, of Melbourne during like the early 90s and i think my my mom's generation when they had arrived like there was a lot of backlash towards uh like this negative perception of vietnamese people and i i kind of by, by asians or by everybody just by australians in general so it was just like even the aborigines <laughs> no <laughs> not that i knew of like uh <laughs> but there's I guess, like, by the time I, I caught, the, like, the tail end of, like, this weird cultural, like, hatred towards, you know, I think it comes in waves. Like, you know when each uh, new wave of immigrants, it basically... Uh, America has has had about 10 of them. And <laughs> my ancestors, the Irish, were, were one of the first waves of people that were, uh, you know, the, the, there was a stereotype that... Um, at a place of employment, there there would be signs that would say "Irish need not apply," and then it, and then it was the Italians, and then the Germans, and and on and on and on and on. And so, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, it's more or less like that. Like, uh, I caught the tail end of like the Vietnamese being unpopular in terms of like, uh, you know, just low income uh, gang activity and all that stuff. And uh, so. Yeah, that I felt growing up in that like you it it was just really it was hard to navigate like the interracial the, the racial politics of it. Um uh, you know, occasionally you met um other like non-Vietnamese Asians and you would feel like they would look down on you because they would feel justified that we were creating this heat that was they were getting flack for and that we were the lesser lower class. We were in the news and this perception of us being drug dealers and stuff like that. And yeah, so there was that aspect, but generally the racism came from dealing with the whole uh, integration, like speaking English, white people. And yeah. Do you, do your parents uh, speak English? Um, not really. That's, that's also part of my story. Just, I I grew up my mom was a single parent she raised us me and my sister and uh I didn't really speak Vietnamese and she didn't speak English so there was this element of neglect that 
um, that just emotional neglect that came from not being having not having like this uh, the same language. But yeah, yeah, it would be really hard to bond. Uh, I would imagine with uh, a kid when when you don't speak the same language. Where was your dad? Uh, my my friends got divorced, and um, he was living out in the suburbs and became uh, a weekend like visiting father and all that stuff. And how many kids in your family? Uh, from three, give or take. <laughs> like uh, my. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> uh, my my dad had a kid before he met my mom, and my mom had a kid who's the brother I I I didn't really grow up with because he was ten years older than us, and I never really knew my other brother from my dad's. And then there was me, and my sister from. Uh, my my dad and my mom's union. Okay, sorry so, that became really. So in your house, it was really you, your sister, and your mom. Yep. Okay, and what was uh, described the kind of the climate and in, in your in your household, what it was like. Looking back on it now, I it it was it was an adult woman who was living in a society where she. She was on. She's always been on disability because of her OCD and and her post traumatic stress, from what I can gather. And so she had to support us on just on that and child support payments. And it was a, a woman who was coming, who was living in her illness. Her and we became. We lived in her illness. We were. You know, we, as kids, we would start to, she would ask us to check certain things a certain number of times. And so it just grew to be, we lived like that for a while. And, you know, uh, there was times where she would get really upset and, uh, you know, there was a bit of hitting and, you know, uh, which is, there's part of me that feels like it's a cultural thing, but it's also, you know, wrong, like, you know, uh, being the byproduct of 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 this experience, I, I realized I'd, that would never happen to my kids. In but uh, what were like? What would give me an example of how her? Oh, was it, you, she said you would have her check things like what? Go make sure that the stove is uh, turned off uh, and check it five times, or or what? Kind of like uh, sometimes it was the the story is a classic one and. Uh, you know, she would count to 10 or 30 arbitrarily, and we would have to kind of witness her doing it just so she could rest easy knowing that someone had witnessed her checking the stove and that the house wasn't, like, or the place we were living in wasn't going to explode or or gas wasn't leaking or... And checking the locks of the doors and just checking it, like, turning it five times and... You know, as I got older, it got less severe, and I became less a part of it. Like as me, and my sister grew grew older. It was just then it became something we would hear. Like we would hear her silent, like this soft chanting and counting, and yeah. And what would you and your sister say to each other when your mom was doing this? How long? Let me back up. There obviously there was probably a period where you were young enough that you didn't understand that what your mom was doing was a part of an illness. Yeah, it it seemed 
you know, at the time it probably just seemed like a a controlling parent, like this is some arbitrary thing that my parent has asked me to do, like, I guess like teaching a kid manners or like, you know, where you're like, hey, you live in the world, like say please and da 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 and be, be kind to strangers, but this was kind of just like, she's an adult and she runs the house and... We'll do what she says. Yeah, generally. And you, you, just speaking of my sister, we had we had a kind of not so great relationship growing up as well. And it was uh, my sister had relatively good Vietnamese in comparison to me. So it was just kind of like relatively good what Vietnamese. Oh, uh, 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 grasp of the language, you mean? Yeah. Okay. And so she could speak relatively directly to my mom and. Vice versa. So it almost became, you know, even though we were kind of adversarial, like being these cranky kids growing up with this OCD mom. And so in the few moments of levity as a kid, like, I guess we could joke about like this checking and mocking her, her like bad English accent counting to 30 or whatever. But, uh, you know, at the time I, I, it was hard for me not to like view my sister as just someone that had an in to this person that was kind of mistreating us and neglecting us and and your sister you said was older or younger than you older by year and I'm I'm sorry if we're just jumping all around if, no, that's okay yeah that's okay that that's pretty much what we do <laughs> okay. um give me some snapshots um from your childhood or adolescence that you think kind of paint. Uh, a picture help paint a picture for the listener to understand uh you and your emotional life and what has shaped and formed you i i i suppose like the key word is isolation and and loneliness really um it i again i, I just gotta keep repeating this but like looking back on it now i I can, like, finally, like, when I say I came from a really bad place in my life, I, I mean, just having to, like, view my mom as a person, like, with agency and an adult, and then slowly grasping with this compassion thing, and and realizing she really, you know, we, we constantly, like, look back on the previous generation, and when I say we, I'm... I feel like I okay, like you're older than me. <laughs> Forgive me, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yes, but like you know, they did the best they could, and you know, I think that I I really think of my mom as someone that really did the best with what she had, and uh, but I uh, the isolation was and the loneliness. I it I was just this kid like living in this house and. It was really hard for me to even, uh, you know, I, I became someone that really lived in their imagination and fantasy, of, of course, and and you know, I realized that's helped me later in life, as in, have like this very deep imagination, and and I suppose like my quick, my quickness, my wittiness comes from a place of like having this really deep well internally, but uh, just. You, you know, it was a very unhealthy way to live when you're a child, basically. And I, I just really remember, like, the vividness of listening to lots of radio and listening to lots of music and finding that really soothing. But What was your favorite? 
<laughs> radio? Or? Yeah, what were your favorite uh, kind of radio stations to listen to? I guess I just grew up listening to like your g- g- generic pop uh, radio and it's kind of embarrassing, but I, I, I guess the song that uh, lots of Mariah Carey and Voice to Men R&B and just learning to sing those songs just as a child. But Do you like to sing? Yeah, I love it. It's, it's I would say, <laughs> one of the greatest things in the world. It's, it's beautiful, basically. What do you feel when you sing? I used, I used to sing all the time as a kid, obviously. Uh, I, I guess it, it is visceral. There's no word for it. It's just kind of, it's deeply soothing. And that's a, that's another part of my story, but it's just, when I, when people started to hear me sing, like in passing, and, and it was being witnessed, it, it changed, it changed me, you know, it, it really validated all those years of doing this arbitrary thing, more or less. In, it, you, you suddenly felt maybe like you weren't invisible? Yeah, it, it yeah, it, 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 it's really, I think the thing that's hard to sort of relate of all this is, um, that, you know, I was doing all these things in a vacuum, and that's what I would describe my childhood like. It, the significance of, like, singing and culture, and it was just, like, for me, and then, like, and being unacknowledged. And, you know, it's it's really hard to just come from poverty and, and isolation and try and be in the world and take these things that you've learned. Yeah... <laughs> and and I would imagine also being being a minority in a in a country too. I imagine that's an added layer uh on top of that. Am I am I wrong there or is that I I think it can it just made things a lot worse. Like um Sure that moment um when you were on the train. When I was on the train? Yeah. I think you wrote something about being on a train and, uh, and you heard them talking about you yeah i was um i was on the tram late at night and i was just reading a book and this group of white men were talking at me and talking about me and you could it's it's happened to me before like i think you know it's that weird contrast of being invisible in my childhood and then being acknowledged but objectified mm-hmm. and so i i felt this incredible like two things like my fight or flight mechanism was going crazy and like i i was like be still because these white men may hurt you because they're talking about you reading in like an animal reading a book like this do you remember what they said um, they're kind of like trading bars, like, I didn't know it could read, and just, yeah, it, it just, it really just drew me out of my body, really. How do you mean? As in, I... You felt like you disassociated from your body? Yeah, just completely, like, I, I froze immediately, I just, like, yeah, it just took me, I was like, be, just, it just froze me, I just, like... 
<laughs> I mean, it's it's sickening to hear secondhand. Mm. I can't imagine what it felt like to experience that <sighs> firsthand. It's it, it's weird when I you know because it was so striking to me. Like sometimes you know, and it's I hate to say it, it's something that happens happened to me recently as well. Like this father and son were talking about me when I was sitting next to them on the tram. Uh, they were both white and. Uh, and you know I play guitar as well and I'm sorry if I'm just coming out with these secrets about being musical but um, so I have a guitar and they were just talking about me like like objectifying me and just saying I why doesn't why doesn't he play the guitar and talking about just mocking me and I was just like (laughs) there's a part of me that got uh, the anger was boiling off in me and just like they knew they that they knew I knew that they were talking about me. And so there was a part of me that was just like so angry and wanting to lash out at them, understandably. And then there was a part of me that thought it was kind of funny that like a father and son were bonding over like <laughs> this kind of like racist moment of like, it's just like, uh, um, I, I just need to, to say something. I just, I feel kind of self-conscious and I feel like, I'm so all over the place, Paul. You're like, so what? All over the place in terms of... We we do that uh, <laughs> sometimes. Uh, and a lot of times I will uh, detract and derail and, uh, you know, stop the momentum of something and mm-hmm. ask a question that leads to another thing. So don't worry about it. You're doing great. Oh, uh, You're thanks. You're doing great, yeah. But uh, I just... Just about, you know, that, that was our recent example, but... Sometimes I'll overhear people talking about me uh, in, like, just, like, not knowing, as in, you know, when you might see someone and you and maybe you're at dinner and you say, hey, that person's wearing a really nice shirt, <laughs> that will trigger me. Like, I, I, I think it comes from a, a place of hypervigilance. Like, I can pick up things really easily, but I just remember this this white couple were talking about me in like a nice context and it was friendly and they didn't know I could hear them, but it just made, it made me, my adrenaline rush. And that makes sense because you don't know what, if it's going to turn suddenly. Yeah. Or if like, yeah, if they start saying like, uh, you know, something awful and, but yeah, just the association of being kind of referred to in that way was. Do just... you think they think that you don't speak English, and and that's why it's okay to talk about you as if you can't hear them? I I yeah, I think there's a part there's that aspect because I've had to deal with that, you know, deal with speaking the way I speak and and watching people's faces react like when they either approach me or. I, you know, I'm at a store or whatever, and I talk to some white lady, and she kind of double takes almost, and it's really subtle, but it's just like you don't feel great. And she does double take because you you're not speaking with a Vietnamese accent, accent yeah, or yeah. slow, or or you know, and I hate I I hate to say this because I've gotten flack from Asian people about it, but you know I have like this kind of gentle voice almost, and I was just kind of like I, I've copped flack from white people about having great English. I've copped it from Asians about not being Asian enough. It's just kind of like 
I hear that a lot from people that are uh, first generation or people of um, mixed ethnicity mm-hmm. is they feel like there's no they're they live in a world of in-betweens where they're not enough for one group of people and they're not enough for another group of people mm. and it sounds like that's what you're describing and that that sounds um it sounds like the the theme running through all of the things that you struggle with is a sense of identity mm. and a sense of being seen um and who are you mm. is that a fair thing to say that you that you struggle to to have a sense of self that is positive or did you generate that on your own and you have a um positive self-image uh i think i'm coming to terms with that now i really i i i grew up in a vacuum and then in in fact coming to a place of recovery is like is slowly, I think you grow up and you don't like the situation I, I came from. I didn't really like myself because of the racism, of course. And then, and the rejection from these two groups, like white society and then, uh, my own ethnic group in the sense of like, you know, like you're not Vietnamese enough, quote unquote. Because you don't speak Vietnamese. Yeah. That and I, I guess like the, the privileges that come with being seen as exceptional, quote unquote, like that comes from having being seen as intelligent in a way that white people can digest. And that's really awful. It's really awful to say, but it's just, there's a lot of resentment that comes from, cause they, it's, you know, I've, I've seen both sides, like how hard it can be. Cause I'm, I'm Asian all the time. It's not like I take a break and, <laughs> So, you know, there's, it's hard when pe- there's these two groups of people and they kind of like, you get, you're told by your parents, like, be exceptional, be great, be, work hard so these white people won't give you any problems. You won't, you can move fluidly through society. And, and white people expect a similar thing of like, yeah, be a model minority, like, become a doctor, do it. And it forces you to, like, manipulate yourself into, like, these warring groups. And it it makes you crazy. It really... You never you never stop to think, what do you want from this situation? And because and, you're trying to fit in. You're trying to win the favor of... The approval of these two groups that don't really have your interests in mind. And, that sounds hard. That sounds uh, like a mind fuck. <sighs> Yeah, it, it it I I just it's crazy making. It is it help me understand what it is that um some Vietnamese people have a problem with you. What 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 is it? I I don't Sorry, I, 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 haven't, you, I haven't quite grasped that part yet. Uh I guess it was the heart. I'm I'm just going to I'm breathing a bit just Okay. Are you nervous? I'm 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 fine. I'm I'm fine. Okay, take a drink of water. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, but uh we got all the time in the world. I, when I say Vietnamese people, I don't mean like uh, most people are cool. Most people, are, I want to. I just want to say before, most people are great in terms of like not just Vietnamese people. I mean like 
or most people are just kind and trying to be sensitive. It's just like the people who are the most bigoted or the most vocal and they go out of their way to make you feel unwelcomed. And if they're doing their job right. <laughs> It, if they've if they've learned well from their racist parents, <laughs> if they've paid attention, go ahead. And I, and I'm I'm trying to be careful about the way I say this because I, you know, I had these Vietnamese friends, and growing up, like we all grew up in this inner city neighborhood in Melbourne, and with low income housing, so it was just like knowing that Vietnamese people live there and I suppose it's that aspect of like uh trying to honor and inherit the culture like mm-hmm. speaking speaking the language and well I I suppose like for my mom's generation it's like you have that responsibility to like compartmentalize yourself and do the duality like and manage it well juggle them like don't assimilate too much. Well, you don't assimilate too much, but like assimilate enough so you can like ascend class and you know become become middle class and you know partake in like the democratic West first world dream and uh, and, ca- and carry every ounce of your heritage and pass it on to your next generation. Generation and yeah, so it sounds like. In, in a way, be everything to everybody, and you'll be you'll be okay. <laughs> you'll be fine. Yes. Was that was that ever explicitly kind of said to you by your mom, or was it just kind of implicit in your rearing that you needed to be um, a certain level of um, accomplishment and education and stuff to assimilate with the with a white population, and and to also um, absorb the heritage and the traditions of your your culture? Was it, or is it something that you feel comes from a variety of people's opinions about how you should live? Was uh, it, in other words, did it come from your mom? Did it come from a multitude of people? Or was it this something that you just feel you needed to be, to, to be loved? I think... My I just my mom was kind of out of the picture as a parental figure in terms of like influencing my choices and and my extended family like her siblings more or less kind of like wrote her off as the quote unquote crazy one and but I had I I associated with my cousins and it was like the general mission statement, I guess. Like, I, I could see they were being raised with that attitude, and there was that expectation, and and I guess there was, like, um, <laughs> the way I got it was just, like, there was resentment towards me and my sister to an extent because we were doing well in terms of our our schooling and our integration despite having a quote-unquote crazy mom mm-hmm. that wasn't there for them was it jealousy it was the resentment and jealousy def definitely and and that's what i mean by like i suppose like the dealing with like vietnamese people in terms of like there was the resentment of like white people the the <laughs> 
they would sort of assume that, oh, okay, you got great English, so therefore white people are going to accept you more readily and, you know, like... Almost as if you're uh, a quote-unquote Uncle Tom. Yes. An an Asian Uncle Tom. I believe, like, the term is Uncle Chan, actually. Oh, oh, there's an actual term for it? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. What's it called? Uncle what? Uncle Chan. I heard heard Eddie Huang say it, like, the uh, Asian-American memoirist, and... Yeah, I guess, like, they were like, uh, and I kind of worried about being a quote-unquote Uncle Tom sort of figure because, although I was not, because I had I had plenty of racism to make me not want to. <laughs> to um, but it was, was the feeling on the part of uh, your extended family uh, that you were kind of, if, if you had gotten this far in assimilating, that you must be some type of a suck up is was that kind of the thought in their head or was it just jealousy on their part it was it was mostly a gel like a jealousy thing like it it would have been really annoying to my cousins for them to have me as an example that was like why can't you do as why can't you be as smart as why can't you speak english like or whatever like even though their english was fine it was just like yeah i had I'd like made the gr- the grade, you know, in terms of yeah, being fluent. I see. And and I suppose uh, in their mind um if they were going to compare themselves to you, then it would also be like and they don't even have a mom who's stable. Yeah, who's So like, I can't, you know. Or like a mom or parents who are like spending money to like get to to tutor us or whatever. Like they would they were a lot richer than us, and yeah, it just seemed like an unfair. Like, why are these kids like, quote unquote, doing so well? And so, so give me some some other snapshots from your life that, um, uh, or some issues that you struggle with. You know, uh, I think we've we've certainly touched on uh, trying to find a sense of identity and mm-hmm. two kind of contrasting worlds um what are what are what are some other issues that you struggle with uh i think dealing with the aftermath of all this like the com- going up really conflicted and not knowing where where to belong and who i was and and being really angry really really goddamn angry and uh oh how old are you i'm 29 now so i'm just this i would say this year was the first year of my life where i was okay just just nominal you know like not seething with anger yeah not not telling those jokes where there's the subtext is i am so angry and i you 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 know there's that you bring it up but it's just like humor is acceptable aggression mm-hmm. it was just like that's all i was in terms of like being funny just constantly using jokes to be to do mock anger but like there was a layer of no i'm really angry there's yeah. That's my my mom's sense of humor. That's her. She you know she would say something really mean or backhanded, and she'd say, "Oh, I was kidding. It was a joke." But there was no, there was no funny there. Do you know what I mean? It was just uh, uh, 
a reaction. Yeah, it was just, and I did the same thing uh, oftentimes, too. It was just a way for me to let my anger out. And in my mind, I was being funny, but I couldn't see that I was actually hurting somebody's feelings or just being uncomfortably hostile in a polite social social situation. Um, so go ahead. Uh, as soon as I hit like nine and ten, there was this avalanche of anger and pain and finally being able to like embody that rage I guess and then I started doing terrible in school like teachers didn't know what to do with me uh, I I went to school in an inner city neighborhood uh, there should be a, a ding every time I say inner city neighborhood <laughs> Just, uh, that's right people of color <laughs> but uh, so it's and we had the majority white teachers, and it was a majority Vietnamese class. It was a Catholic school, actually, and uh, the student body was mostly Buddhist, uh, funnily enough, and the nuns did not care. Like, I'm, I was raised Catholic, by the way, and uh, so we have that in common, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, but the, the nuns didn't care. Like, that, the majority of the students were Buddhist and Vietnamese. They were very, just, I guess, like, sweet, compassionate people, and... So these teachers kind of knew what they were getting into and were very tolerant and accepting of other cultures. And then I went to high school in the outer suburbs, and that's when they were like, we don't know how to deal with people from a different culture, and that conservativeness came in, and which happened to like coincide with me being crazy, crazy angry and sad all the time and not not being able to like get help or have any emotional support because my my parent was someone with mental illness as well basically yeah, you had, you had uh, nothing it sounds like to have your emotions reflected back to you nobody to witness your pain i guess yeah i had no did your sister ever talk to you about your did you guys ever talk to each other about what you were feeling no no and i i don't Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. (laughs) I don't don't want to throw her under the bus, but it's not like she had it easy either. We were like a house divided. Yes, I'm not, uh, and I'm not trying to, you know, (laughs) lay any blame at her feet either. No, no, it it was a a bad situation. We, all this stuff was happening, like, and she... You know, I think for years I I thought, you son of a bitch, you had it easier than me. Like towards my sister, I'm like, no, she she had her own stuff to deal with. She, it was just there was no witnessing, there was no reflection, and you know it. And that's why I say that I had it good at the start because <laughs> being 29 and coming to the place I am emotionally now, I'm like oh, I'm connecting those dots. I'm reaching that far back to, like, realize the sweet person I am. The sweet, intelligent person I am is that kid. And the... Because for years, I had that anger and the hostility, and I used to be defined by that, you know, just... Was a lot of that anger towards yourself? Very much so in the world, as I guess. Like, yeah, the world. And I think towards myself because... You're told by the world you are wrong and you don't fit in anywhere. And and the only times you do fit in places is when you meet some crazy exception. There's some 
When you were young and you were doing well in school and you said you had these people telling you you're beautiful and you're special, these were teachers that were telling you this? Uh, y- yes, they, these were teachers. And and did you were you able to take that in or did it just kind of roll off? Uh, I took it in at, at the time. Like I really... Until the pubes hit. <laughs> un- until, seriously, the wave of emotion. And then I... I forgot completely. There was so much pain. And I, my first year in high school, okay, I, if you want to understand, like, the onset of just anger and the, the reality changed. I, I, I was put in an ESL class. A what? ESL class. What's that? English as a second language. Oh, okay. On, on the basis of my name. They never spoke to me. You've got to be kidding I'm me. not joking. And I've... I told I've told my friends this story for years, and they either don't believe me at first, and then I'm like, "Hey, seriously, why do you think in the first year of high school I was separated from?" Did you hang in there just to get an easy A? <laughs> <laughs> just sandbag them. <laughs> it was it was awful. So that did you did you speak up for yourself and say, "What the fuck are you doing?" It was I just. Yeah, more, more, kind of, more or less. Yes, it was. It was crazy. Looking back, and I was like, I was like, this is so fucking racist and crazy. And because my ASL teacher is who I won't name because I don't want any fact to fall upon her because she's wonderful. She, she wasn't the one that put you into the class. No, we like, we would. She, she was. Okay, pre-pubescent, I had all these great teachers. She was like one of the few people in high school that was like, we would sit across from each other and she would separate me. Like She would give me different work or whatever. And So you had to stay in this class? I stayed in there all year. And What? And the worst part, Paul, is I didn't win ESL Student of the Year. How unfair is that? <laughs> but I stayed in the class. It was not... Did they make you stay in the class, or did you just not say anything? Did you not realize that you could have said anything? I I think a bit bit of, like, the latter. Like, I didn't understand, like, I guess this is my life, accepting it. These are adults. And it's not like I could go home and go, hey, mom, you know, because she, sure. she, she wasn't there. She was emotionally not there. And it's just like, so these that races. so painful. It no was, wonder you were angry. Oh, my God. And. I, I I just want my ESL teacher was a was and is a wonderful lady. She um when I say I'm putting the semblance of my adult self together, I'm like I pulled strands from this lady. These you know I think when you hate yourself for years, you get these compliments and you get you just get basic you encounter basic kindness and you use your intelligence and anger to like fuck that off. You're like oh that person was being nice. Or the you know like uh, whatever whatever you intellectualize these compliments and these kind of things, but my ACL teacher was great, and we will. I guess we had a knowing that like hey, like we would talk in class, and she would compliment me my intelligence and blah 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 blah, and it was just kind of like the subtext was hey, th- this is a bit of a pickle we're both in. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I knew she knew. Yeah. I, I knew she, but yeah, that made me angry. Really, that wasn't the be or end of my racist experiences, but it was, 
for years, like, people, I would tell people this and they would just be like, you're making this up or, or they would have, I would have to like really emphatically say, yes, this happened to me. God. How did your anger and the other negative emotions that, that built up in high school, how would you express them? Uh, How did you cope? What were your your coping mechanisms? Not necessarily healthy coping mechanisms, but um, but how would you? Did you have anything to soothe yourself? I guess uh, singing, singing, music was great. Obviously, Uh, music was wonderful, and I didn't. I I was so disempowered during these periods of my life. I was just like, you have no. That's that was like. That was like my adolescent life was you have no power and you've got to suck this up. So it, it was just years in the wilderness of not thinking I was good enough for anything, hating stuff, like being told I, the people who were reaching out to me, was, it was falling on deaf ears. And and the people that were out, quote unquote, out to get me, or, the negativity stuck. So, Isn't that weird how that happens? It's like, oh. Yes, I can. Of course, I I believe that I'm a a, a piece of shit. So it the the coping mechanism for me was video games. Uh, I'd like these really deeply intense fantasies about getting away from my life. Like as like a twelve year old, thirteen year old, this is really intense. And I, I looking back at it now, I'm like, wow, that was crazy. Like just wanting to fake my death almost <laughs> so it's just like hey i'm gonna get like a hundred dollars i'm gonna set that aside i'm gonna somehow disappear off the face of the earth and move away from everything i know and and it i did have these creative dreams and of and of course like the people again the positive people in my life were like you should do x and y and you have you have this gift and this imagination and what were they encouraging you to do to write, write prose, and, like, music has always been something I've kept super secret. Like, I didn't really even... It, I was I had such terrible, poor image that that I put music on a pedestal, and it was like, you can't even touch it without dirtying it, you know? Like, mm-hmm. don't, don't let your hands... And... I think you, could, you would make a great English as a second language author. <laughs> special section for you in the bookstore i would love like me doing like an audio tape of esl with like emphatic like you know how they emphatically pronounce everything it's like all these angry the most racist anecdotes from my life being recounted in these breaking down the syllables but uh, uh so um fantasy and writing were an escape yeah, and I I just also want to say like I was sober during all of this. I I didn't drink as a teenager because I again I grew up in the inner city in inner city in Melbourne and uh, ding uh, <laughs> and and went to high school in the suburbs. So the perception of Vietnamese people from the inner city was you're drug dealers and. I made friends with this white kid, uh, and when, when I say white kid, I mean all my friends are white, but it's just this one particular person in high school, we became friends, and uh, we made plans one time to to hang out, and his parents would drive him into the inner city and drop him off at my house, and we'd go see a movie, and uh, he 
he said he would show up at one and two hours later he finally arrived and we would go see a movie and then and come back and you know he would get picked up and he would do it again and come late again and he told me that his parents he would argue with his parents during those two hours or whatever about whether they should let his son their son play with a Vietnamese person what yeah that and hearing that hearing that from a kid and and we're kids like and we're like these perfect delivery systems for adult racism this is like the gray area and the intensity of that and so hearing that stuff and just hearing all this negative perception stuff about Vietnamese people about how terrible you guys are and you're drug dealers and you're just gonna die in an alleyway and they didn't want they didn't want their son to play with me because they thought because I, the neighborhood I lived in I was gonna get their son killed in some gang or like get him onto heroin or whatever and that that really affected me and you know as I went through high school I got to know these these parents and typically like most racist people they're super polite when confronted <laughs> with their object of bigotry and fear. So that just, that to me communicated that white people are nice to you because they're afraid of you. And white people are only nice to you to to save face. And so it was hard for me to trust people. And I'm sorry if I've just moved away from the question, but... No, 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 you haven't. Uh, uh, this is all this is all interesting stuff. Um, did any of those parents ever come around in their opinion of you? Not, not that it was shared, no, yeah. No, no, not not in any way like, hey, uh, just so you know, when we met you, we had all these bad perceptions of your ethnic group, and and by the way, you're the exception, you're going to turn us around on our racist, no, no, and, you know, I have a... But I mean, like, did some of them stop arguing with their kid about going to hang out with you because their mind had been changed about who you were I, I i guess there was like as far as i knew throughout high school it was le- it got less and less but because just of like they probably got argued uh, they probably got tired of arguing with their son and they mm-hmm. probably got tired of you know realizing they probably realized hey i'm being i'm overreacting a little maybe yeah. and because i think there's i think there's two kinds of racism i they're, they're both come from a place of ignorance but I think one is a combination of ignorance and meanness, and the other one can sometimes just be ignorance. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, has the best chance to change. The one that where they've just never met somebody who um, that they get to they get to know as a person. So all they had in their mind was what they see on the news mm-hmm. or what they've been told that you know this ethnic group is such and such so i was just wondering if maybe any of those um people were the latter the somebody who is ignorant and then kind of becomes enlightened enlightened, but i really don't think so you don't have you don't have to put a good spin on this i just just wanted the truth i I, they good luck to you australia God bless. Uh, someone, please. Uh, can any listeners send in offers of marriage? But uh, <laughs> it was. I think. I think it was just that willful ignorance and fear, basically. I'd, 
these these people were school teachers. They taught in high schools that in, had a Vietnamese student body. So it wasn't like they were so sheltered from people of color or anything like that. You're talking about the parents of your friends yeah. were teachers? Okay. So that blew my mind as well. Yeah, yeah was, that's, that's double fucked up. And... Uh, it really, it really did a number of me for years. It was just like, hey, just so you know, educated people can be racist too. We know oh, we, God, yes. We have this perception of like, uh, once, if you have like privilege and education and like, you know, that, that can save you from cruelty and racism. It was just kind of, I had like this firsthand experiences with these people that were from privilege and it was just kind of like, really sickened me. Like, as, and I couldn't, I couldn't describe, that feeling because mm-hmm. it just you're so again like very much a disempowered child but you're just and you you're deeply wronged by these adults you're so wronged and there's the part of you that's a teenager that like hates authority figures and just to, wants, be, to begin with yes and then you pour that on top of it and you know the 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 type of racism that i i dislike the most uh, maybe not the most, but I think is is one of the more insidious is liberal racism that's uh, patronizing, mm. that is that views um, uh, an ethnic group or the disenfranchised as if they can't do anything on their own and they're the knight in shining shining armor. The white person is mm-hmm. like you see it in movies oftentimes where. Um, the white person comes in and saves the black people at mm. the end by reversing, you know, the injustice. And uh, I find that one uh, kind of particularly uh, sickening. <laughs> and it's 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 kind. Of, there's this kind of self-aggrandizement of as if you you can't pull yourself up, you can't write this justice mm-hmm. uh, on your own, or we can't do it together. We've got to be the the one, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't know that that one always kind of kind of irks me. I, I totally agree, and it was, it was so hard not to just, just interrupt you. Uh, could you not white explain that to me, Paul? <laughs> but uh, yeah, I've I've met those people as well. I've met it. My life is my life has been the, the navigation, the navigating of. Checked and unchecked racism, and it's so annoying. Annoying is an understatement. It's, that sounds like annoying is an inconvenience, as it's like, hey, Mr. Boss. But it, it it is like that choice of the lesser of two evils. Like, do I guess I'll take this because it's like the less over and demoralizing and dehumanizing one. But oh god. So I feel like we've like so t- gone beyond the tangent of what we're talking about. Oh, I don't. I don't feel like that. Oh, thank you. Um, what has helped you heal? Um, Have you ever gone to therapy? Uh yeah. I, I, I be. It is so. Throughout high school, I did not drink. Mm-hmm. As. Uh, which was fueled by resentment towards a group of people that saw me as less than and uh, and morally weak. So I didn't drink as a teenager, and because uh, you didn't want to feed their idea of uh, what a, a of a, like a lower a, income, right? Like ethnic person, yeah, yeah. This resentment and you know th- those parents that I was talking about, they actually 
again, they did a double take when I said I didn't drink when I was in high school. They were like so shocked when I was have at a, their son's party mm-hmm. and you know they were buying alcohol for their son. It was just kind of like, oh god, you assholes! Like you're so condescending and smug about you. So I didn't drink at all. I didn't mm-hmm. do sober drink. Um, around 19, I, <laughs> I started to like loosen up on that and started drinking and that just made my, basically living with my, living with depression for, since childhood basically, just anger and pain that had been carried around with me for so long and. Let's, yeah, let's make a nice stew for that. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's let that simmer in some, uh, some alcohol. How'd so, that, how'd that turn out? Not so great. Yeah, really? <laughs> Not so great. Uh, um, you know, and, you know, as each year got worse, each year of, like, subsequent drinking and, like, I, I entered into therapy, like, after, like, a particularly rocky phase of depression and at, at the behest of friends, like, of friends and and slowly I started piecing back... This pers- person, because I didn't know who I was. I was this kid being pulled p- between all these different expectations. And and the, hard, the, the worst part of it is I was always me. I was always fine. You know, I didn't need any of these judgments in my life. I, I know that sounds... You know, we all get judgments, but I was listening to them. That was the worst part. Because I didn't have any reflection and mirror to like, you know, I had no one to go to. Like the the worst part about this looking, I, you know, I grew up thinking, looking at other Vietnamese people and minorities, people of color, and they're like, yeah, I I would be afraid of meeting Vietnamese people in the wild, quote unquote, because I didn't know how they were going to react to me as this mm. English speaking person, and or if their English was better than mine, and. Or if they had the class thing, if they're going to resent me or whatever, and I would meet these Vietnamese people. Just, I'd, I'd like the the thing that struck me about them was, hey, uh, why aren't you fucking angry <laughs> at all? What happens? And, Are you not paying attention? Yeah, and and that kind of sometimes that that would make it worse because sometimes they'd be like, oh. You know, I, I, the self-blaming would happen. Well, like, they clearly behaved in a way that wasn't offensive to white people. And you deserved what you got, you know, like, kid. Like, so you would believe that sometimes, that it was your fault that, that you were getting... They weren't getting flack, but you were. Yeah, that I had somehow became this whipping boy, basically. And, and you know, for years, people would, like, agree or, like... In a really subtle way, victim blame me, like you know, because I was always angry and this angry person, and they would assume, okay, well, clearly your anger is causing this. Yeah, because but it was actually I was angry because of all this, and so I would look at these Vietnamese people that weren't suspiciously were not angry and didn't have any resentments about who they were, and I was like, oh. Looking back on it now, I'm like, oh, they had a, they had parents and they had people enough people to go back to and say, hey, uh, hey, mom, I got put in the ESL class and this is completely wrong, right? And something should be done about this. Or like, 
hey, these white people's parents don't want me to hang out with them. I had no one to even report that to. And, I, you know, I no, the, the language barrier did not help at all. It was just... So I, I was between, my own... Between you and your mom. Yeah. So I entered into therapy and I spent the first maybe five years. I'm probably in my seventh year of therapy now. And uh, they haven't sent me the plaque for that yet. But <laughs> but I, I think I spent like the first couple of years of therapy just talking about my mom exclusively. And, and, and when I say my mom, I mean just like the neglect and mm-hmm. the poverty. That's a sweet combination, neglect and, <laughs> and poverty. That's yeah. nature's one-two punch. Um, so that that was the majority of it, and like working out through all that stuff, and finally getting to a point of compassion with my mom, where I'm just like, yeah, yeah, you, you did, you did what you could, and so I thought, I thought I was pretty much resolved about my anger about the racism, but then. I started talking about it like in the last two years, really, and uh, I think I, I emailed you this. But after my first hour of talking about it with my therapist, who was a nice white lady, I had to ask her, "So, how's your white guilt going?" <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> did she laugh? Yeah, she. Of course, she's a therapist, but it was just. <laughs> it was well, so- some therapists might have said, oh, "You're trying to make a joke. Are you uncomfortable?" <laughs> Some therapists will do that. I've had therapists call me on my ship before. They say, you know, it seems like you're using your humor to deflect right now. And maybe you're experiencing an emotion you're not comfortable with. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm so transparent about my feelings that yeah. I don't think I, yeah, I don't think I could ever do that. I'm not saying I'm better than you, Paul, yeah. but it's, there's nothing like a therapist that gets you, though, you mm-hmm. know, that gets your sense of humor. Or, but, but also doesn't allow you to deflect. Oh, yeah, or fuck around and not do the work, quote-unquote. Yeah. Uh, so give me some breakthroughs in, in therapy. You said uh, having more compassion for your mom. How about in, in terms of um, how you feel about yourself? Uh, were there any kind of key moments you want to uh, you want to share or processes that where something got better? He uh, just made a, a, a grimace. <laughs> Why are you why are you grimacing? Uh, I guess like the whole self compassion thing is new. Like, uh, feels it feels uncomfortable to you. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It, Do you feel that you're not worthy of uh, compassion? I I I think I'm I'm definitely one of those people who knows things but does not feel them. It takes me a while. Oh, and brother, I'm with you on that one. Uh, there's so many times when I know I'm supposed to feel one way, but I don't. I just feel nothing. I just feel numbness. And I'm like, why can't I look at other people and they're either they're laughing or they're crying and I'm just, uh, you know, a wooden fence post. But go ahead. I think for me, the breakthrough on like working through therapy on the self-esteem and the neglect stuff was a good thing for me. But the thing that really helped me was and really started saving me in terms of learning to be vulnerable with people again and trusting was uh, talking about the racism with uh, certain people that just... I, I've had friends for years, obviously, and it's just... But again, like I would tell these stories like, hey, I was put in an ESL class, and they would be like, hey, fuck off, or like, you're... They would not 
understand. They would not listen. You know, like and they did. They, was it that they didn't believe you that happened to you, or they couldn't understand how hurtful it was? They couldn't understand how hurtful it was. They couldn't listen without rationalizing or or intellectualizing it. You know what I mean? They wouldn't listen and just go, oh, that. Listen to my experience without having to scrutinize it. Right. And you like, know, oh, well, this person probably said that instead of saying, oh, my God, that's that's horrible. That must have felt really demeaning. Yeah. Like, basically, when I told you the first time, you were just like, oh, sweet Jesus, that was awful. And and I think it's like, okay, well, they would say stuff like, okay, look, buddy, your name is X and Y, blah, 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 blah. You have the most Vietnamese name on planet Earth. Of course, they would assume you, your English is second language and blah, 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 blah. But then, like, you know, they would just rationalize it away. And in turn, that made me someone that would an unsympathetic ear and compassionless towards others, others at times. And that, looking back on that, it sickens me that I fell into that, that I could, that I was had so little compassion given to me that I couldn't do it for other people. And, you know, and I think, with recovery like you go for me at least i go through each threshold of like oh i'm feeling again i'm feeling that and i have like maybe i don't know maybe a week or or even months to mourn certain parts that i never got like for years i couldn't have compassion for other people and i had to mourn that and go well you're feeling it now that's all that matters but just for years i was and well, angry to, and compassionless dude that sounds like you're making some serious progress you know that the the fact that you've been able to do that I, I think is um a great testament to not only you but your your therapist your therapist sounds uh like because that's a hard that's a hard process to get people to to do oh thanks was it hard for you it wasn't hard in the sense of like it was grueling. It was just a relief that I could acknowledge it. Really, it was, and and not have somebody minimize it. Yeah, and and the other thing that came from it was gratefulness to have this back. Like, I'm like, oh, this is it's, it's an emotion, obviously, compassion, but it's a skill as well. It's not like a skill in the sense of like, hey, I'll put it on my resume, but it's 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 like human it thing that we need. To be a person in the world and and to carve out relationships and to like to be emotionally healthy to like keep a decent handle on and to be our own advocate so i you know i just i just want to get back to you know so I had these people in my lives, and you know because I came from an abusive and neglected situation with my in my the pa- inner city <laughs> and the inner city uh but it's just, I, I, I think my picker in terms of friends was off, and I, this one person, uh, I, she, I, I, I don't know why I brought it up, but I, I told her about just my, like a self-esteem and the racism I endured, and so the first person that listened and didn't scrutinized me and wasn't suspicious basically like about it and that started off this chain of like of basically women who i i i could trust and and i i started really believing basically you know i think 
that that I didn't deserve any of this to happen to me at all. I didn't deserve to be to to be treated like that and would would it be fair to say she was the first person outside of your therapist that truly witnessed your feelings? Yeah, who who saw, and who witnessed me and saw me as is, like not undiluted by any like biases or bigotry and just just a human being and 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 what what made it kind of really cathartic was she she was hurt by it as well. She was hurt and shocked by hearing this because she. I've had a number of like really close female friends to say, "How could have this happened to you?" Like I see this really beautiful, smart person. He's so funny, and then the, someone did this to you, like, and you got through all that to be this person. And you know, and may, maybe these were the people that I just didn't show my anger to, or they didn't. They only saw it in glimpses. But yeah, th- that was like it was so nice. It was just slowly turning shit around because of these this snowballing effect of like, okay, uh, so this is what it's like to have self-esteem, I guess. And yeah, I, you know, I think one of the first signs that you're progressing in therapy is you begin to weed some of your friends out because you begin to realize that you deserve um, healthier relationships. And I, I, you know, we, you've talked about it before, but just like boundaries and, you know, with my growing up with my mom, it was just like there were no, were no when you're neglected, there are no boundaries. It's not like people are violating those boundaries. It's just like I'm not here emotionally and I'm not here physically to stop you from doing anything. So I just let people do stuff to me. I just assumed when bad stuff could happen, I'm like, well, you're powerless to do anything about this. So roll on, I guess. And now I'm finally having boundaries and yeah i'm i'm a, a year sober by the way so oh congratulations uh th- thanks it, it was actually just i think maybe two last friday and you know it's kind of my treat to come out to la and all that stuff but uh so i just i don't drink anymore obviously and and i say <laughs> i don't drink because i'm angry so great uh and that never stopped me oh <laughs> uh, me neither it was just I think even maybe for a few years, I was just like, I was using hedonism as a cover. I'm like, hey, I like this. and But no, I was just, I was just angry. Why does society have to have any rules? <laughs> Why can't I walk down the street drunk? I'm being judged. But, um, what, uh, what, if anything else, would you like to, uh, to share before we wrap up? I think if anyone's listening to this, I, I just... You're as much as you need. Like, you don't need approval from anyone. You don't need to win anyone over. To, you kind of... And that's something I've learned that... And, you know, I was talking about those great teachers in my life. You know, the subtext of all of that was, you're enough. Like, it didn't. I didn't have to be great <laughs> to be deserving of respect and and compassion. It was just, you're a person, and that's all that matters. Well, that's beautiful, and I, I think that's a really, really important thing. And if, if you're out there and you just heard what 
had to say and you're rolling your eyes because you think that's too touchy-feely well that's a that's a sign from the universe that you need to go to therapy because <laughs> you're because that's what i would have done 12 years ago i would have rolled my eyes at somebody saying that it's oh, i think i'm enough but deep down i was so cut off from my feelings that i couldn't i couldn't see that but um if there are people in your life who love you conditionally mm-hmm either distance yourself from those people or cut those people out of your life because that can drain the life force right out of you trying to please people that that only show you love when you act a certain way or do a certain thing that's that is uh i don't know what the word is i'm looking for but i want to thank you for coming by and uh sharing your your story it's nice to uh, have a new accent on the uh, podcast. <laughs> I don't think we've ever had an Australian accent. Are you our? F- are you my first Aussie? <laughs> I, I think so. I think so. Uh, I think you are. I think you are. But uh, thank you so much for coming. Uh, no problem, Paul. Thanks for listening. I had a really nice time uh, talking talking to him. I shot him an email, let him know, uh, letting him know his episode was going up, and uh, he said he's doing well and he is uh, doing music full time, and he seems like he's in a good place. So that's that's nice to hear. Before I uh, take it out, I mean, by the way, the the reason why we uh, bleeped his name through all of those instead of uh, using uh, a pseudonym throughout it, because I, I was kind of annoying when I was uh, editing it. I was like, oh, these beeps are going to drive people crazy. Um, we decided to use a pseudonym for him after we had recorded the, uh, the episode. So uh, thank you, Paul, for explaining something that nobody really was even thinking about. Uh, and that was my perfectionistic uh, angst moment of the day. Let's all uh, genuflect and enjoy that. Got a big stack of surveys. What do you think of that? How does that grab you? Does that pop your buttons? Is that a saying? If it's not, it should be. Herbert, jot that down. In your butthole. Uh, I gotta say, uh, Herbert's butthole, it's not that far away from uh, being a big hashtag on Twitter. Uh, getting a l- Herbert's butthole has a lot of heat on it. That could be taken about six different ways, but um, yeah, he sends his regards. Before I take it out with some surveys, I want to remind you, Double the different ways to support the podcast. Oh, no, not DJ voice guy. Oh, yeah, Paul, I got to tell him what's going down in the Quad Cities, rocking you now with a little Kansas. Uh, no, trust me, he's he's gone for the remainder of the show. Um, our website, mentalpod.com. There uh, are different ways you can support us financially at that website. You can make a one-time PayPal donation or my favorite, become a monthly donor for as little as five bucks a month. It may not seem like uh, much to you, but it adds up and it means the world to me and it helps keep the podcast going because we could always use a bigger budget. And um, you can also support us. Use our Amazon link if you're going to buy something in Amazon and then give us a percentage uh, of the price that you pay and it doesn't cost you any more to um, comes out of Amazon's pockets. That's what I'm telling you. Um, you can support us non-financially by going to iTunes, writing something nice about us, giving us a good rating or spreading the word about the podcast through social media. That helps greatly. Um, especially any of you that, uh, if you have a big Twitter following, uh, that, that always gives us a nice, a nice bump in, uh, listenership or a lot of followers on Facebook or, uh, whatever, whatever media, Reddit, um, uh, 
Prodigy. Uh, I'm trying to think of another old one. Coleco. <laughs> oh, I'm making myself laugh. Let's get to the let's get to the surveys. Actually, this first one is an email I got from uh, a guy who calls himself Mark, and um, he writes, "Looking for advice. I have a close friend who is depressed and has anxiety so bad he can only leave his apartment." Um, before dawn so he doesn't have to run into people. I get texts that say, I'm just broken. My whole life has been BS. And when a celebrity dies, he responds with a text saying they are lucky. So my question is, how do I guide him into getting help? And I responded uh, with, that's a tough one because the person has to have at least a small part of them that wants to get better. Um, You might have him listen to an episode of the podcast that might help him realize he's not alone. You might uh, offer to help uh, find a psychiatrist for him and make the appointment uh, or a therapist. Uh, and and also, I said, be prepared for the possibility that he will refuse all of this. He might even take his life, but that is not on you. And if you find yourself becoming drained by his refusal to get help, there is nothing wrong with telling him you can't watch him suffer while not at least trying to get help. Uh, that's not being a bad friend. That's being an honest friend who is taking care of himself. Um, I've had to do it with people in my life uh, who are similar to your friend. And I remind them that I care about them, uh, but that I was becoming drained by it always being the same conversation without them trying anything different. So um, I hope that helps Mark and any of the rest of you that have a friend uh, who is in that place. This is from the body shame survey filled out by Dance This Life, Dance the Life Out. And uh, she writes, I wish my legs were longer. I wish you could see toned muscles and angular bones jutting from my skin. I wish I had Britney Spears' flat belly. I wish you could see every one of my rib bones poking out so you could run your fingers along them like a beautifully sick musical instrument. There's a lovely sentence. Um, I want a jawline that can cut glass with cheekbones to match. Maybe then I will be beautiful. Maybe then I will be enough. Thank you for that. That was poetic. That was poetic. God, you could run your fingers along them like a beautifully sick musical instrument. You should write, uh, you should write poetry or music or something. Um... Little SP uh, sent me some loves and fears. Uh, Her fears, I'm afraid someone will say to me one of the many hateful things I say to myself. I'm afraid my cat will outlive me. I'm afraid I'm too old to have another pet. I'm afraid I will be away from home when the big, not if, but when, earthquake occurs. I'm afraid of losing my independence. I'm afraid that if I don't let go of being fearful in this lifetime, I will have to deal with it next time around. I'm afraid of driving over bridges and through long tunnels. I'm afraid if I trip going up concrete stairs my and knock my... I'm afraid I will trip going up concrete stairs and knock my front teeth out. I'm afraid my mind will go before my body. I was thinking about that very, very same one uh, this morning. Uh, I love when I... Oh, and then her loves. I love when I let someone in front of me in my lane of traffic and they wave in their mirror. I love that one too. I love to smell my cat's breath when he yawns. Ditto. Well, not cat, but Herbert and Ivy. Ivy is fucking horrible. I got to get her to the vet. It is. You can smell her when she's like eight yards away. It is. It's bad. Um, 
I love finding humor in fart sounds. I just never grew out of it. I love when my cat and I happen to be in the bathroom at the same time. Me on the toilet and he in the litter box. That's a great one. I love seeing someone dressed in business attire with dog or cat hair on it. That is a great one. I love the days I wake up without anxiety. I love when I have a couple free hours to read a really great book. I love the look of joy on the face uh, of a dog that's going for a ride. I love when I remember my thoughts are just thoughts and they have no real power over me. I love when I wake up laughing from a dream. I love the memory connected to the 50-year-old scar on my knee. My dad and I were climbing on rocks at the beach and we both slipped and fell. And then finally, I love when the baby in front of me in line at the store returns my smile. Those are beautiful. Thank you for that. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by uh, Tornado of Contradictions. Uh, She is straight, in her 40s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, Was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, I was sexually abused by my father, and there was some uh, inappropriate behavior by an elderly man in my neighborhood. Uh, I was six. Also, an uncle by marriage made me very uncomfortable in the back seat of the car my father was driving. I was 12 and my sister was 8. Nothing happened then. However, in recent years, he has groped slash grabbed both my sister and me. I am 48. I went into a PTSD sort of mode for a weekend. My mother had a similar reaction like she did about what happened with my father. I got dad to stop touching me when I was 10. He leered popped in the bathroom and bedroom unannounced. My mother tells me that once she caught him looking at me like a man should not be looking at his daughter, and then she put it out of her mind. Yeah, I'm in therapy for that now. Already did dad. He's dead. I did the literal deathbed closure and forgiveness moment nine years ago. Ever been emotionally or physically abused? I've been emotionally abused. Alcoholic house, chaotic, depressed, and drugged mother. It was the 70s, and let's give the moms Valium. She doesn't believe in self-esteem. Oh, that self-love crap, she'd say. Very belittling, cruel without realizing it. You never did anything right. Mom had no interest in our lives and what we were doing, and since she didn't care, I didn't either. The minute you did feel good about yourself, she'd cut you off at the knees. I hated myself all through my childhood and became a withdrawn, awkward kid with issues. Her sisters knew what was happening, and then the one would wash us so hard Uh, quote, down there, and it would hurt, and I was eight and told her I was big enough to handle it, but she could wash my back, and she wouldn't talk to me for the rest of the evening. A lot of conditional love. We haven't even talked about the dimes in the butt cheeks for better posture, but maybe another time. Wow. Wow. Um... Any positive experiences? There were many positive moments while the adults around me were trying to portray us as this happy middle-class family, and it does complicate my feelings about them, and all of it, and most likely explains why am I why I am my age and back in therapy ready to deal with the mom stuff. I so wanted one sane parent, one sane parent, and when one sexually abuses you, naturally you think the other one is the healthier one, the safe one. I now realize that my mother did way more psychological damage to me than my father, and that has proved to be a bitter pill to swallow. Ah, therapy. Darkest thoughts. To be honest, 
I don't have any sinister dark thoughts. I mean, you'd think I would, right? Oh, I joke about my new career as the apologetic assassin. You know, it would be kind of like a community service, really, because I'd be hired to take out bad people, and I'd say I was sorry before blowing their brains out. Also, I'd leave their wives, girlfriends, or boyfriends baked goods with a note saying something like, you're better off without him. He was sleeping with everybody at the titty bar. You get the picture. Um... Darkest Secrets. Many years ago, I let a guy I was seeing screw me up the ass. I didn't want to, but I let him anyway, and then it took several stops. No, before he did. I hate that story. My mom met her husband of almost 30 years now when she and I ran a pisser together, and she invited him and his friends home. I'm not sure what a pisser is, but I'm sure you guys will um, email me and let me know. Or I could get off my ass and Google it, but I'm not that kind of guy. Uh... She and I ran a pisser together, and she invited him and his friends home. I was not happy about this, but I ended up leaving with his friend and sleeping with him because what else do you do when your mom is sowing her wild oats after divorcing your father and she wants you to participate? Sigh. And then you come home in the morning, and she and the man you would come to call your stepdad are still in bed. Sigh. Uh, sexual fantasies most powerful to you. I don't fantasize that much because years ago I didn't like where they were going and I just stopped. And I am not comfortable with saying any more at this time. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish to be mentally at peace and to be accepting of who I am completely. I'm quirky and I need to own that and not judge myself so harshly. Have you shared these things with others? I have. Ah, I think sometimes many people don't know what to make of me. My husband does, though, so fuck him. <laughs> That's awesome. How do you feel after writing these things down? It feels fucking awesome, Paul. Thank you. My husband pointed out to me last week that another telling thing from my childhood is that I wasn't listened to at all, and we all need to be listened to. But some of us have stories that many people find too uncomfortable. I would suggest that those people get a library card and start reading as it's a big bad world out there with many different people and their stories and you need to have your eyes, mind, and heart open. Not all of us grew up in Mayberry with June and Ward. Oh, you're mixing your TV shows. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Keep your sense of humor. If you don't have one, find one. Buy one. Very important. Very. Sometimes it's all you have. Yeah, I, I, I like a saying that I hear in recovery sometimes, which is take your recovery seriously. Don't take yourself seriously. And uh, I like that one. Yeah. This is uh, a happy moment filled out by Weirdly Normal. And um, they write, my sex is male. I took one of these surveys a few months ago. I think it was shame and secrets or I shouldn't feel this way. What was bothering me then was a strong sexual fantasy I've always had. Sex as a woman or just myself in a woman's body. I didn't think I was transsexual and it was all very confusing. The happy part is this. Literally over the course of the last week, I've accepted now that I think I am at least not cisgender. The self-acceptance of my, quote, new identity makes me inexplicably happy and also absurdly terrified. I have an appointment with my doctor in a week or two. I'm resolved to ask her to refer me to a therapist and see if they can help me discover my next steps. Oh, and uh, any suggestions to make the podcast better? Perhaps the gender section of the surveys could also include questioning. That's a good choice. That's a good uh, suggestion for a, for a choice. Um, this is also a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Dog. 
She's straight, in her 20s, raised in a stable and safe environment, uh, never been sexually abused, not sure if she's been physically or emotionally abused. Darkest thoughts, I want to die in my 60s. More than 40 years of dealing with a chronic disease and new medications and side effects from those medications and skin tags on my anus and being this stinking animal seems like too damn much. Let me go stoically and silently, like Nora Ephron in a swank New York City apartment with statues and curios and people who adore me and like my meanness. I think about fucking a girl with a penis, my penis, were I to have one. Darkest secrets. I shoplift. I used to think this was the deepest, darkest one. Actually, I'm afraid I abused my younger sister. She at five or six, me at 11 or 12. I would babysit her and have cyber sex with people that I, quote, met in AOL chat rooms. I would pretend to be a college student. A college student. I misused the word anal. It was all beyond my comprehension. My hormones were overflowing. I felt so guilty after having cyber sex while I was supposed to be looking after my sister that I cried to her without the specifics. I would masturbate with a pillow while we were watching TV. Once I think I rubbed against up against her uh, to climax. Did the same thing with my dog by the fireplace. Everything felt misplaced. I pray to God she didn't know what was happening or doesn't remember. Uh, Lena Dunham got a lot of flack for sharing in her memoir that she put Legos in her sister's vagina when they were kids, but her sister didn't or doesn't see it as molestation. I think it would depend on what uh, she was building with the Legos. If she was building something dirty with the Legos, then... uh, uh, continuing, uh, I don't think I could ever bring this stuff up with my, with my sister. Uh, you know what? I don't know. You haven't asked for my opinion, but, um, that, that's a tough one. I don't, I don't, uh, I guess I don't really have an opinion, but I would say, um, bringing it up with a sibling might depend on what your relationship with them is like currently. Um, but that would be a good thing to, to talk, uh, if, with your with your therapist about if you have a therapist or or a really trusted friend or partner uh sexual fantasy is most powerful to you i love being tossed and flung around and made to look at someone in the face as previously previously mentioned fucking a girl with an anatomical penis sounds nice this is easier to type than i imagined that's awesome have you shared these things with others? The boys uh, I daily with, I'm daily with, are already afraid of pegging, but I'm not interested in pegging. I fantasize about being a man with a nice cock and fucking a nice porno-y girl, real quaint. So I guess because it's inachievable and just fantasy land, sharing this wouldn't be too big of a deal. How do you feel after writing these things down? Gutsy as hell, chutzpah out the yin yang. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Um, sip of tea. Somebody asked me how I prepare the tea, that I should share that, and I've got to believe that they are truly the only one that gives a shit, but I will say this, loose leaf. Not a fan of uh, tea bags. Love to be tea bagged, but not a fan of tea bags. I actually can't think of anything that would gross me out more than a guy just slowly dragging his low-hanging scrotum from my forehead to my chin. At uh, yeah, it, uh, I've said it before. I'll say it again. The scrotum looks like it needs to be ironed. 
are there any, is anybody turned on? I'm sure there are people that are turned on by the scrotum, but I feel like, I feel like the penis is the headliner and the scrotum is like the in town opening act that just, they got to be on the bill. You wish there was something you could do about it, but it's the son of the guy that books the venue. That's what the scrotum is. The son of the guy that books the venue. The son of the guy that books the penis. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Kira and about her anxiety. She writes, wearing a heavy backpack that I want to take off and know that I should, but I'm too afraid of leaving behind the things inside. That is a great one. But being a sex crime victim, like living in a house that doesn't belong to me anymore. That is heavy. That is, that is so profound. Snapshot from her life. After a fight with my partner, I went outside and slept on the concrete outside my house. I sobbed and cut myself and fell asleep in the rain. When I woke up, I was covered in snot and blood and dampness and mosquito bites. It was one of the only times I felt like I had punished myself sufficiently. Sending you some love, Kara. Sending you some love. This was filled out by Apathy Aches. Um, who struggles with anxiety, drug addiction, self-sabotage, and uh, living with an abuser and being uh, self-sabotaging and abusing. Um, Snapshot from her life. My kitchen table is home to the never-ending pile of unopened mail, unpaid bills, and collection notices that tie my guts into a knot and cause that familiar rush of nausea slash adrenaline every time the phone rings. I have a career that I love, I work hard and make enough money to live comfortably, but I don't. I am not too depressed to open the mail or too busy to pay the bills, I just don't. And it's not that I don't care, the situation makes me physically ill. Everything is late. Final notice, due now or past due. I know I'd feel so much better if I just sat down and started chipping away at both the pile and the bills, but I don't. I walk out the door and spend money on shit I don't need. Projects I won't finish. I'll even throw it into a Kino machine, which I don't even enjoy, but I spend until it's gone, till I have just barely enough to scrape by with the essentials. I do all of this within a couple of days of being paid and spend the next 12 days full of dread, hating myself for what I've done and denying myself the smallest comforts because I can't, quote, afford them. Then payday comes, rinse and repeat. I, hon- I honestly don't know why I do it. Maybe I'm afraid of what I'd feel if the distraction of anxiety wasn't there, so I create it for myself. Or maybe deep down I believe that I don't deserve to live comfortably. But I know that my children do. I hate living this way. How can I intentionally put my family in a situation that many less fortunate struggle every day to climb out of? That is a great question, and thank you for sharing all that. I don't know the answer to that. But I think talking to somebody might be a good place to start. And, um, you know, you you filled out a thing about uh, having alcoholism or drug addiction. That might be a good place to begin. It might be a really good place to begin is, is looking into getting help for that. 
This is a happy moment filled out by Johnny Toxic, 1985, and he writes, Last night I saw Bruce Springsteen's River Tour and was lucky enough to be on the second barricade. During Hungry Heart, he came into the crowd, and before I knew what was happening, he was coming towards me. He was doing his boss thing, and when we made eye contact, he smiled at me and leaned across the barricade with his hand out. No small feat since my wheelchair put me a couple inches away from the barricade. We shook hands, keeping eye contact the whole time, and the boss smiled again, and it was somehow even warmer than the first. Without saying a word, he told me that he was glad I was there. That smile is one of the most incredible gifts I've ever received. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by K. Doll, who was male. Uh, he's gay. He's in his 20s. He was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. When I was around five or six, I remember my cousin, who was of similar age, uh, and I went under his bed, and he took off his pants and asked me to take off mine, and we just touched each other for a few minutes each time. Uh, and this happened a few times, and then his family moved, and it stopped. He has been physically and emotionally abused. He writes, from about the time I was six until I was about 10, my mother was dating a guy who only took his uh, his aggression out on me. I don't know if my mom ever knew personally, but I told her and she told me several times that I was making it all up just because I wanted my parents to get back together. <laughs> Fuck. Unbelievable. <sighs> Maybe he was abusing her too because I would be locked in my room, only allowed to leave to use the bathroom less than four times per day if I did something wrong. When I was a teen, my mother got another boyfriend in her life who also didn't like me. And this, now I understand, was because my, quote, gay gestures had appeared more, and this is where I was called faggot, fat, stupid, and led to believe I would be nothing. This time my mother was also involved. I still feel heavily attached to those words. Any positive experiences with the abusers? At times when I would do something really great, like really great and got an award or something, I got nothing but good attention and I was always treated in a loving manner when we were in public. Wow, that sounds like the very, defini very definition of the conditional love from a narcissistic parent darkest thoughts. I don't feel suicidal anymore, but I feel like dying, and I think about different, quote, accidents that could happen so no one would know that I have been suffering from depression and anxiety. Darkest secrets. I used to fantasize about my abuser when I lived with him and be almost aroused when he was yelling and pushing at me because I thought this is what attention from men was. I hate every fiber of myself because I know I deserve to have and lead a better life, but I don't feel deserving of it at the time. Deserving of it at the same time and that this is what I deserve. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Being tied up and being blindfolded so I would have no control of what is happening to me. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To the parental units? Fuck you. What is your reasoning for this? Why keep me if you hated me? What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish to understand what is going on in my brain and how can I stop holding myself back? Have you shared these things with others? No, I don't want to seem broken or have people have sympathy for me for the things that happened to me. And that, my friend, is one of the most unnecessary roadblocks to us getting better. I urge you to put that out of your brain. You cannot help your brain while still holding 
onto the fear of seeming broken or people pitying you for the things that happen to you. There's a difference between empathy and sympathy. And if you find the right people, um, you will feel felt and that helps us feel less broken. My two cents. How do you feel after writing these things down? Scared and insecure for letting another in deeper than skin deep. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You are not all of your thoughts. Some of them are just there to hurt you. Thank you. Thank you for, uh, thank you for sharing that. And I hope you can, I hope you can get past that sentence your brain is telling you. Because you're also denying people the chance to love you. When we hold all that in, we, we deny people the chance to fulfill their potential as loving friends, loving human beings. Um, yeah. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Meh. And uh, she writes about her anger, her anger issues. I wish I was a werewolf so I could rip you apart eat your guts, and shit you out in your own backyard and then pee on it. Can you just please shut up already? I can feel myself turning hairier by the minute. Thank you for that. I love I love when people just carry it to a length that, like the peeing on top of it after shitting it out, and it's in their own yard. I just love, I love when you guys get into uh, that amount of detail. This is an awful moment f- filled out by Fair to Middling. And uh, she writes, My sister and I at my aunt's funeral, trying our best to stifle our laughter as a friend of the fa- family, uh, solemnly sang, Not wind beneath my wings, but wind beneath my feet. <laughs> this is filled out by, uh, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by Pam. She's straight. She is in her 40s. Um, Well, between 41 and 50. Raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Never been sexually abused. uh, Never been physically, but she has been emotionally abused. My mom was very mean to me when I was a kid. Not until I got a little older, maybe 11, and started to talk back and tell her how I felt did she start to change. She called me worthless. To this day, that word will make me cry. As I got older, I realized what kind of mother she had as an example, and I think that she couldn't help herself. At least I never got hit with anything but hands. It's amazing how we will minimize that. But um, doing this podcast, I have read so many stories where the day the thing stopped was where somebody um, said something to their parent, grabbed their hand, you know, while the parent was trying to hit them or something. Um, And it just makes me think like that parent is almost in some type of trance that they're being woken out of. I I don't know. I don't know, but it's... um, Anyway, continuing. Darkest thoughts. When I was about seven years old, I held scissors to my chest thinking I would kill myself. Decided quickly I didn't want to do that, but that I should somehow fight back against my mother's bullying. I wonder sometimes if that was the right decision. Certainly I would not have killed myself with kitchen scissors, but maybe if I hurt myself, my mother would have looked at herself and her behavior towards me sooner. I doubt it. I really doubt it. And for one, we're glad you didn't 
hurt yourself. Um, but I think your mom probably would have found a way to still make it about herself. Um, there, the sickness of always making something about yourself, which I, which I suppose is uh, narcissism, not necessarily narcissistic personality disorder, but narcissism is one of the most difficult things for, for people to see. Um, and I have it in me. Anybody that's listened to 20 minutes of this show knows that that is the case. Um, that's one of the hardest things to be, to be honest about. But, um, once you're aware of it, it, uh, it's a lot easier. Darkest secret, but enough about me. Uh, darkest secrets in my forties, still a virgin. No one I know knows this interested in having a boyfriend, but never really been approached or found anyone interested in me. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Sex is too terrifying to even think about at this point. It's never happened and it may never hap- and it may never happen. Sometimes I'm okay with this. Sometimes I want to have a girl to make out with while I'm being penetrated by a guy. Too much porn watching, perhaps. What if anything do you wish for? I wish a man I find attractive would be attracted to me and want to spend time with me. These are the thoughts of a child, and I'm regularly embarrassed by this. Why are those the thoughts of a child? I don't see anything. I don't see anything at all. That's There couldn't be a more human thought than that, a more common thought than that. Uh, have you shared these things with others? I would never. I had a close group of friends in college and anything you told one of them in confidence would make its way around to everyone eventually. That's when I stopped telling people my secrets. I think that's more a reflection of your friends and that age group than, than it is the safety of people um, in the world. How do you feel after writing these things down not feeling much today? Well, sending you some love. Sending you some love, Pam. Struggle in a sentence. Dance the life out. Shares, and uh, she's queer and she's uh, a teenager. Uh, and she shares about her bulimia. Uh, maybe if I stretch my fingers down my throat far enough, I'll find some self-worth. And then a snapshot from her life. What I ate today, 6.30 a.m., opened the fridge and all of the kitchen cabinets and stared at the food. Settled on ice water, zero calories. 7 a.m., black coffee, a natural appetite suppressant, 10 calories. 12.30 p.m., half a banana, 60 calories. 2.30 p.m., other half a banana and a few almonds, 160 calories. 4 p.m., green tea to decrease water weight, zero calories. 7 p.m., baby carrots, 50 calories. 11 p.m., Four slices of bread, ice cream, a bag of trail mix, potato chips, and 12 Oreos. Too many calories. 11.30 p.m. Puke until I'm dry heaving. Question mark, question mark, question mark, calories. Thank you for sharing that. This is an email I got from uh, a 15-year-old girl uh, who wants to be uh, called Ray. And she writes, uh, you, were you received a survey a while ago uh, from, uh, from me. Uh, you read my survey on the podcast, sharing with the happy hour community my struggles about asking my parents, uh, and then parentheses, mother, for help. I was thrilled and terrified to hear my words aloud. And I listened to them and your advice to seek help from a school counselor twice. I've had bad experiences with counselors and I wasn't planning to reach out until they reached out to me. I was called down in the middle of, cl of class to the counseling office. 
My counselor left me sitting, calling in at least a half dozen people ahead of me before we could talk. As I stepped, shaking into his office, he told me to close the door. This is never a good sign. He had a special computer screen angled so I couldn't see anything he was reading or doing. He proceeded to tell me that one of my emails on my school account had been flagged with certain words and he wanted to see how I was doing. It was all very vague, but I knew exactly what he meant. The night before, I'd been cleaning out the notes on my phone and I emailed myself the ones I wanted to keep. On one of the notes, in particular, was a diary. It talked about anxiety, cutting, suicidal thoughts, and intimate reflections I had about my life. And this counselor had access to it all. I felt violated, caught off guard, and defensive. I was in free fall. My heart was beating out of my chest, but I made eye contact with him and smiled. How am I supposed to answer the question, how are you doing? Um, it's a question I get asked every day, so I gave him the same answer I give everybody. I told him I was fine. I proceeded to tell him how great a day I was having and how I was going out to lunch later. He switched immediately to small talk, joking, man, I wish I could go have fun with you. He was sitting in front of a girl he knew was suicidal. I spelled out everything in that note. He was sitting in front of a girl he knew uh, he knew who needed help, and he let me change the topic. He even reassured me that I was... Uh, not an immediate or concerning case and that my note was like confusing poetry. I knew this was my chance to beg for help, but all I could do was sit there, frozen. I can hide my depression so well. In a last-ditch effort, I told him I was looking for therapists, and he dismissed me, saying that if I ever needed him, I should come back and maybe look for more resources. Needless to say, I am not going back. Even though this guy was perfectly nice and just trying to do his job, all this visit did was encourage me to hide my depression better. Maybe I needed to spell it out for him. Maybe this is my fault. Maybe it's always been my fault for not getting help or not asking in the right way. But as a teenager, I still feel like adults have some responsibility for me. I want them to fight for me and tell me what I need to do. And this has made me realize that they won't and nobody ever will. I'm not writing this to get pity, of course, but to challenge the idea you bring up of therapy or support groups being available to everybody in some form or another. At this point, I have gone to multiple adults and faced rejection every time. I can't drive, and even if I could, I don't have money for therapy. I'm just a kid, 15 years old. I know this isn't a typical demographic for your podcast, but I know a lot of teens in similar situations. We feel stuck and angry because of our age, often uncomfortable with our parents. I don't want to victimize myself. I don't want to seem like a hopeless case because I don't think I am. I don't want to abandon the idea of therapy, but as we all know, a hallmark of mental illness is not being able to make decisions. I don't know where to turn. Lucky for me, I'm surrounded by supportive friends who both understand and experience mental illness. Some adults don't even uh, don't even have have that. I am grateful for them every day, but I know they can't. I know they can't give me the professional help I desperately need. Um, I'm sorry this was so long-winded, but I wanted to say on behalf of any teenager or person who's had bad experience uh, experiences with their parents or counselor counselors that it sucks to want help and not be able to get it. I empathize with and send love to everybody in this situation. I hope this sheds some light on my school system and the way mental illness is received in an academic setting, especially for someone, quote, high achieving like me. And I replied back uh, that, uh, thank you for sharing that. And I'm so sorry you've had uh, 
you've not had any positive experiences reaching out to professionals. Uh, it sounds like the adults you've reached out to don't really understand how hard it is for us to open up and how important it is to provide a safe, gentle, private vibe for that person who is suffering. Would you agree with that? It sounds like it just didn't feel safe to you because that person didn't feel like they would understand. Is that correct? And then she wrote back and said, you hit the nail on the head. A lot of adults around me just have misconceptions about mental illness. Also, as mentioned in the podcast, people don't see what they aren't looking for. I'm learning as much as I can about dealing with these things, but it's like running down a steep hill and trying not to trip, you know? Um, yeah, I do. I do know. And I think one of the reasons I wanted to read this is because I know that there are therapists and social workers and counselors who listen to this podcast, uh, as well as other teenagers. And, you know, the experience that I've had in being in therapy is it's all about the chemistry between me and the person, well, even outside of therapy, you know, even with a friend I'm opening up to or somebody in support group, it's all about the chemistry and the feeling of safety. And, um, That it's a vibe. It's a vibe. And uh, I don't know how to put it into words to say what it is. A lot of it involves eye contact. Um, a lot of it involves um, compassionate facial expressions. But I also don't think that stuff can be faked because I think we also pick up on it. Which is why I, I, I always say that people who have been damaged, um, once they start to heal, they make the best therapists. Because they know, they've been there, and you can feel when you're feeling felt by somebody who who understands, and uh, I hope that all makes sense. Uh, this is from the Being Hospitalized survey, and this was filled out by Don, who is 72, and about his hospitalization experience, he writes, I purposely drove my car off the road and hit a tree because I thought the military was following me in a helicopter. The psychiatrist told me I needed to be in the hospital after a five-minute interview. I describe your experience. Definitely harmful, but not knowing what else to do when I had repeat paranoia, paranoid episodes, I signed myself in another four times over an eight-year period. Um... But this was, uh, the hospitalizations ended when he was 33. So it's been over 40 years. So thank you for sharing that, Don. This uh, is the same survey filled out by Lowe. And uh, she was hospitalized for malnutrition and subsequent dangerously low heart rate uh, due to anorexia. Uh, describe your experience. It has happened twice. Both were the worst string of days I've ever had in my life. I was in a two-week-long panic attack that was only agitated each time I was asked to eat because the doctors and nurses were trained to address the physical manifestations of the life-threatening disease. I received absolutely no psychological care during either stay and felt at my absolute darkest during both hospitalizations. I did just enough to get out of the jail that was the hospital, leaving me deeply unhappy and frankly fucked up upon discharge. There was not a day that went by while in either hospital that I did not cry myself to sleep and I could not focus on anything but my own panic and the nurse's desire to simply medicate me and get on with their job. I hated every second. Thank you for sharing that. And boy, if there's anything uh, I hope for in uh, 
the world's uh, future of mental health treatment. It's that uh, facilities like that become more attuned to the emotional need of the patient and that deeply, deeply vulnerable place that people are in when they've hit a when they've hit a bottom. This is from the Body Shame Survey, filled out by, I don't know how to pronounce it, T-H-U-J-A. And she writes, I have a love-hate relationship with my legs. I was told as a kid by my uncle they were too big, that girls were supposed to have skinny legs. I was a gymnast competing at the national level, so an aunt rebutted, do you realize she's a gymnast? She has strong legs. Even though I'm approaching 30, and that was many years ago, I still sometimes look down at them gross. But then I realized my legs got me to the national level as a gymnast, allowed me to compete at the varsity level. Oh, and as an adult, they were able to get me certified as a wildland fire, a wildland firefighter and take me on spectacular hikes. So when I look at myself, you fucking cow, I step back. Hey, wait, these legs have taken me places that wouldn't be possible otherwise. To hell with the patriarchal fuckery. (laughs) Thank you with that. Thank you for that. Um, and then I wanted to read this one right after it. I love I love when there's just the perfect synchronicity of the way that these are filled out by you guys. This was filled out by Crazy Cat Lady in Training, and she writes, I'm way too thin. My legs are like dainty bird legs, and my butt is non-existent. I am envious of short, curvy women. I'm almost six feet tall and feel like a tall, lanky monster. I've read, I don't know, hundreds if not thousands of the body shame surveys, and I would say maybe 10 of them I've read where somebody doesn't have something negative to say about their body, where it's just positive. Maybe not even that, maybe one or two. Uh, Panic Attack writes, I'm fat and hairy. I've lost about 50 pounds in the last year, and now people are all telling me how much better I look. I'm still disgusted by my fat, hairy body, so I must have been inconceivably hideous before. Uh, I want to give you kudos on SEAL Team Sixing a compliment uh, into a cutdown. That is good work. And now you can put uh, you can put your scuba gear away. Mission accomplished. Greg writes, I'm overweight. I have a lot of body hair. I'm balding. I have a small dick. I'm pale. Greg, I want to salute you on your being so concise. You have packed more hatred into what I'm guessing would be about uh, nine words. Just good work. Just good, solid work. Same uh, same uh, survey filled out by Matcha or Matcha? Matcha. Um, she writes, The worst thing I hate about my body is my race. I'm African American and I have the common traits of my race, such as dark skin, a wide nose, and curly dark hair. I grew up in a predominantly white environment and would often feel out of place due to my hairstyles. A lot of times, my classmates and friends would like to poke fun at me for having a different skin color or having my hair in braids, which was the only hairstyle that my natural hair could manage with ease. It also didn't help that most of the media I ingested had people that had light skin and non-brown eyes, and those people were seen as beautiful. 
Even actors of my race would often have lighter skin and or less curly hair. Even in my hobbies of dressing as, a fic- as fictional characters, I feel almost wrong when my skin is showing due to the character most often having light skin. Many members of my community also make fun of dark-skinned members and will often call them the burnt version of the character. For this reason, I often go for costumes that do not show my skin at all in order to feel more comfortable with myself. Thank you for sharing that, Matcha. I love when you guys give us a um, a glimpse into an inner life that um, many of us have not experienced. That was that was um, beautifully eloquent. This is the same survey filled out by Pine Trees, and uh, she writes, "I'm a female, but I th- like that I have long and thick hair on my arms. Thankfully, it is lightly colored, so it blends in with my skin." Uh, my skin tone, and I think people without arm hair are a little weird. I've been told to shave it off by friends, and my mom and boys in high school would tell me I was ugly because of it. I think I like it because having it makes me feel defiant. I don't like my stomach. I'm skinny, but it sticks out. About 5% of the time, I think it looks okay, and then I spend the rest of my time trying to figure out why the size didn't change, uh, didn't change, but why I feel so huge and disgusting. It's a constant reminder that I sometimes overeat as a way to deal with stress and comfort myself. Thank you for that. I love that you uh, feel that way about your arm hair. That's awesome. And to, uh, to celebrate my honoring of your arm hair, I think you should go buy a tiny arm hair comb. I'm sure they make them somewhere. I, they probably sell them at the airport. This is this is a this is a pretty heavy survey. This was filled out by um, uh, Scooby Doo, who writes, uh, "I'm male-bodied but have DID. Parts of me are female. Um, they are. I'm assuming that." Uh, I'm just going to refer to you as they. I'm not going to assume uh, any particular uh, pronoun for you. Uh, They're in their 20s, raised in a totally chaotic environment, uh, was a victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Um, Some of it's kind of blurry. My caregivers abused me from the time I was a little baby. They'd put their fingers or different objects into my anus. Uh, They'd orally copulate me. Later, I quote, graduated into being shown pornographic imagery, being anally penetrated and having oral sex. When I was around four years old or so, my mom sold me as a prostitute and I quote, worked a lot. I was involved in gangbangs. I was part of other people's weird sex games playing out their fantasy. I was on film having sex with other children, with animals, mixing pleasure and pain. At home, my mom was a sex addict. We'd watch pornography together. We'd have sex. I was, quote, on call whenever she wanted to have an orgasm. My dad also used me for sex, though not as frequently. I feel really shitty about it. Most of the time, I can't really even comprehend what happened to me. It feels like vertigo. I just get a glimpse of the horror and then retreat back into dissociation. I can't believe all that happened to me. When I do feel more connected to my past, it helps me to understand why I've never really had intimacy with anyone in my life. I feel sad, scared. It's, quote, too much to overcome. Afraid for my inner children who got fucked so repeatedly that rape feels normal. 
UGG. Um, as to the physical and emotional abuse, the physical abuse happened at birth, too. My parents and other people I don't really know put chemicals on my skin to burn it. They carved little symbols into arms and belly. They put electrodes on my penis, anus, testes, nipples, face, and would electrocute me. When I worked as a prostitute, men would punch me during sex. Emotionally, fuck, it's complicated. My parents had these, quote, happy people masks, which are symbolic of much of the emotional abuse, the lying, the pretending. It was like in one life I was a normal kid with well-to-do parents. Then the nighttime would happen, and they'd become their real soulless selves, and then they start using me. I've never been able to connect with people. I'm lonely all the time, even when I'm with people. I'm irritable, frustrated, and in pain. I want to lash out and hurt other people the way they hurt me, but I know that it doesn't help anything. I don't feel like I matter, like I have any worth. I'm ashamed all the time and always interpret other people as condemning me even when they're not. I apologize all the time. Uh, Any positive experiences with these abusers? Yes and no. The positive experiences make me wonder if everything was was just a more elaborate show. If that's the case, then positive experiences were done really for the wrong reason. If ever something was genuine, then it makes me sad because that means that a part of my parents was still human and I didn't care enough to get better. Honestly, I don't even want to try to, quote, see a silver lining because I tried so hard to love them and they used my love to make me loyal to their addictions. Darkest thoughts. Sometimes I hear this voice planning to use people, to put on a show for them, to manipulate their perceptions of me. Sometimes I make evil jokes in my head about prostitution or killing or eating babies. Sometimes I imagine spitting in people's food or throwing boiling water on their shirts and then pretending that I thought the hot water would feel like a shower while secretly feeling happy that I burned that fucker. Darkest secrets. I use dildos to stimulate my anus when I masturbate. I'm not that ashamed now, but sometimes I've pulled the dildo out and it has poop on it. I always imagine someone walking in on me, horrified. In that scenario, I'm so ashamed because I feel exactly like I felt when my parents decided I was trash. Um, oh, did I say whether or not uh, they were straight? Um, uh they, they specify other and then gay porn and fantasies are exiting, but I want intimacy with a woman. Oh, I think they meant gay porn and fantasies are exciting. I think it was just misspelled. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Going to a gay sauna and giving and getting hand jobs and seeing the men smiling into my face as they stroke my penis. I feel like someone is going to yell, you're gay then he or she will laugh and think I'm a sissy. It makes me feel like my sexuality is complicated. Hey, for what it's worth, I think everybody's sexuality is complicated. Um, What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? If my mom could really hear it, I'd tell her, Mom, I really loved you. Also, another part of me would probably want to tell her I was only a little baby. I was two years old. I was two years old, and you knew it was wrong. God, that is heartbreaking. What, if anything, do you wish for? To die, accepting, oh, to die, accepting that I'm human with limitations and to accept all that means. To walk in the world like my friend does, strong and wise, with humor, with trust, with compassion. I wish I could 
quote, get out of my head long enough to stop worrying about all the things I want to do in my life long enough to just be here now and feel loved. I wish I could go on stage and belt really loud but really beautiful a song about my mom hurting me. People would cry but feel good too, like they got hurt. People would feel free. I wish I had a powerful singing voice to carry all the hurt out. I wish I could be a fantastic painter, technologist, inventor, animal trainer, efficiency expert, entrepreneur, linguist, novelist, memoirist, father. Have you shared these things with others? Uh, I've told my mentor almost everything. Each time I open up, it is scary, but he doesn't judge me. Then I feel braver. I've told my brother some stuff friends a couple things i've told some therapists some things and it goes okay but not as well as my mentor i'm curious to know what what your brother's experience was i'm assuming he was raised in the in the same house uh how do you feel after writing these things down shit kind of sad like i wish i could cry glad that i've quote gotten it down hungry for breakfast is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences I'd probably not say anything, but first I'd want to give them a hug, stroke his or her hair, and look into their eyes. If my eyes could talk, they'd say, it's going to be all right. You're all right. You matter, and nothing is going to take that away. I can see and reflect your innate value. You have such a big soul. You have such a big soul. God, I just want to I just want to give you a hug and say those same things to you. You are such a compassionate person. I mean, what you just described is you have not been broken. Your spirit was not broken. I'm going to read that one more time. I'd probably not say anything, but first I'd want to give them a hug stroke his or her hair, and look into their eyes. If my eyes could talk, they'd say, it's going to be all right, you're all right, you matter, and nothing is going to take that away. I can see and reflect your innate value. That's amazing. That is amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. Herbert, really? I'm going to cap it off by scratching the carpet. Uh, this is an awful moment filled out by Sizzle. And she writes, This happened my senior year of high school. My father went into cardiac arrest while I was hanging out with some classmates at a local diner, including my neighbor's son. My neighbor came into the restaurant and told us that we were going to the hospital. So his son and I rushed out to the car, filled with dread. When we arrived, I was ushered into a private waiting room while my neighbor's kid was left in the regular waiting area. After about 40 minutes, a nurse and a couple of doctors came in to tell us they hadn't been able to revive my dad. He had been fighting cancer and was too weak to recover from the surgery he had undergone a week before. I remember wailing uncontrollably for some time in the arms of a nurse. At some point, she asked me if she should go get my boyfriend from the waiting area outside. I looked at her through hot, bleary, mascara-stained tears and said, he's too short to be my boyfriend. That is fantastic. And then finally, I want to close. Somebody posed that, uh, posted this on Twitter, a, uh, a listener. And... Um, 
it was addressed to the listeners of um, this podcast. Uh, and it says, Hi there, you beautiful broken bastards. I've been catching up on the mental illness happy hour lately. I took a break because my brain turned on me a bit and doing things that were good for me got hard. And I keep coming back to this one thought. I fucking love you people. I love you. Yes, you. You with the sad eyes and the secret scars and the hidden conviction that you're disgusting and worthless and unlovable. You bizarrely, beautifully fucked up being. I fucking love you. And there's not a goddamn thing you can do about it. And you know what? It's easy. You are so easy to love. And you know what else? It feels good. I love loving you. You're like me. And maybe that means I'm easy to love too. Maybe even I can learn. Do you know what I mean? Just by being your beautiful, fucked up self, you've helped me. So here it is. My love letter to you. I'm in awe of your strength. I think you are just goddamn amazing. Thank you for struggling. Thank you for being brave. Thank you for being you. I love you and you are definitely not alone. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.